Hello, I'm Jenny Bully, and this is the Mojo Innovators podcast, brought to you by Jaguar and the new Jaguar XE. Today, we're talking about the South London schoolboy, keen amateur saxophonist and R&B fanatic who went on to become an icon. Yes, it's David Bowie. David Bowie died in 2016, just two days after he released his final album, Black Star, on his 69th birthday. But his legend has been secured decades earlier by risque performances on tea time television, by sonic adventures in Cold War Berlin, or by huge selling albums like Let's Dance. With me to talk about Bowie, his music and his legacy, is his biographer and former Mojo editor, Paul Trinker. Hi. And Mojo's senior editor and in-house Bowie wonk, Mr Danny Eccleston. Hello. Hello. Uh, Paul, I've come to you first, if I may. Uh, was Bowie an innovator from the start? Uh, the short answer is no, he wasn't. I mean, really, he was remarkably derivative, and his first single is possibly the worst debut by any artist of his stature. But because he wasn't um, inherently talented, he had to reconstruct himself as an artist. So in that way, he was an innovator. He actually innovated a complete construction of yourself from the ground up. And this was something mm. taken from, you know, all those sort of 50s acts like Heinz mm. who, and the sort of Joe Meek and other protégés. But he, he made himself into this artistic persona. From that one innovation, all the others sprang. But yeah. he learned his craft by basically ripping other people off. <laughs> so was the creation of the Ziggy Stardust character Bowie's first innovation? Well, the phenomenon of Ziggy, you can trace that back to the 1950s. And in fact, his Mm. fans in the music press actually said it would be a terrible shame if he makes it with Ziggy because it's so derivative. Um, People called it hip Vera Lynn. You know, Starman is a kind of riff on Somewhere Over the Rainbow. But the fact that he created this persona, the Ziggy persona overlaying the David Bowie persona in its entirety, you know, thought through like a brand, mm. that was really innovative. So the, the music is, there's quite a lot of 50s revivalism as well as all the the kind of Iggy yeah. Pop and, and Lou Reed in there. But um, one a guy called Di Davis, who was doing his press at the time, said that years later he realised Bowie was thinking about himself as a brand. He was thinking of relaunching the brand, he was rebooting it. He, he was mm. a one-hit wonder when he came out with with Starman. People had written him off, yeah. you know, because he had a fairly, uh, you know, an, an unsuccessful album off the back of Space Oddity. But yeah, he, mm. he completely relaunched himself, rebooted, refashioned. And what that meant is once he'd done it once, he was free to do it again. So yeah. it was as much the methodology that was innovative as the music itself. Well, sure. the, you know, the music was great. He'd become a very good songwriter. Mm. But nonetheless, it was broadly conventional. Mm. Probably Mark Bowden was pushing the envelope a bit yeah. more and was there a bit before Bowie as a kind of glam innovator. But mm. Bowie saw this developing and uh, committed everything and then mm. just basically dotted every I, crossed every T, so that it was a perfectly designed character. And that in itself mm. was, was pretty new, the extent of it at any mm. rate. So, Paul, you touched on glam and how really it was Mark Bolan who probably got there a bit before him. Tell me about the hype. There's that lovely story about uh, when the hype played at the Roundhouse and Mark turned up in a breastplate from Woolworths. Tony Visconti claims Mm. that the the hype's performance was the beginning of glam. That's true. I mean, I Mm. guess really glam did have a a thousand fathers and uh, it's claimed there's a picture of of Mark Bolan with his chin on the stage. I've never seen that photo. Why haven't I? <laughs> don't know. But, I mean, it's for sure that Mark Bolan was the first person to have a hit 
with glam. Yeah. And, you know, what happened uh, is, you know, he painted his face in glitter before he turned up on top of the pops. And he hit first because he had mm. this kind of quite retro music, you know, the, the boogie music, sure. which is yeah. kind of, you know, sort of oh, Jimmy Reed or or Johnny Hooker mm. or something, you know, very sort of blues-based, chunky music. And then Bowie... He was hip to that. I mean, he might well have been thinking about that kind of thing before Bowen did it. And then, but mm. what he did then is he concentrated all of his forces in that place and went mm. for it all the way. So with Bolan, you know, he Bolan Howe was wearing flares. Well, we had flares already. So what did Bowie do? He got a jumpsuit, you know, mm. with skinny legs. What did he do with his hair? He got it cut fairly short. Freddie Baretti made him a little mm. jumpsuit, and you could say again, it's all planned, but it's all all done in a hurry. You know, he went and got mm. these boxer boots from a shop, I think, in Lewisham that were really cheap, you know, and because all of it was a bit threadbare. So I think at the end mm. of the Ziggy tour, you know, all the costumes were falling apart, even whilst <laughs> all the people were falling apart as well, mm. you know. So, you know, glam wasn't really a movement till... It was just a thing that was happening. And then it was Bowie that made it into mm. a movement because he just encapsulated it all in those three or four minutes on, on top of the pops. Yeah. And, you know, the thing is sometimes it takes real skills to do something mainstream. It's very easy to do what we kind of, hey, you know, this is really cool music. But to have something mainstream and to communicate it to the masses on TV, the perfect medium, and to trail it, you know, with interviews, with Melody Maker that kind of completely reboot you, that's, that's pretty radical. Yeah. Bowie's version of glam rock has a level of sophistication that Boland's doesn't. Bowie's version of glam it has more in common with uh, what what would be Roxy's uh, version of glam, where going back in time to the dawn of rock and roll in a way yeah. and bringing that music back is a way of commenting upon like where we've got to, like sort of we've mm. had the rock and roll decade, you know. So what does that mean? Where are we now? I feel very strongly that that's part of what Bowie's saying when he brings back rock and roll. Bolan's just reveling in the boogie. Mm. Yeah. Paul, I mean, I'm really interested mm. in this idea of, uh, of Ziggy Stardust. How soon into the process of making that record did Bowie mm. conceptualise a character that he would become as he performed and communicated this music? So the whole... Ziggy concert only really came together when he was he was requested to write a single, Starman, you know, which is really yeah. the the sort of final culmination of it all because Starman is about transcendence, you know, about being somewhere else, mm. about an otherworldly existence. Other stuff had hinted at it. And so the album itself, people like Ken Scott will tell you, only really became a sort of a concept album after the fact. It wasn't designed as a concept album. You can look mm. into it and, and, and look at all the contradictions in there. But it was as much of a concept album as it needed to be. And his philosophy, because he had this philosophy mm. that he was a new generation of kids who were kind of post-procreation. They were having sex for fun. Therefore, the idea mm. of sexuality was much more fluid than it had been. But it wasn't really thought through. You know, he hadn't really read all the books that he was name-dropping. He hadn't really read <laughs> William Burroughs. He just name-dropped him. But it was mapped yeah. out in sufficient detail for a work in progress. But also, Danny, there's that idea of synthesis that Paul touched on a minute ago with the, you know, yes, ripping off Vera Lynn, but kind of later, you know, fusing things like American soul music with European kind of melodies. Bowie does interesting things in terms of recontextualising. A song like Queen Bitch is just kind of 
Eddie Cochran, really, isn't it? I mean, mm. sort of, and, and shorn of its context, what Bowie looks like, what kind of statement he's making. You could easily say that it's quite retro. We've seen it all before. But mm. I think that it's Eddie Cochran dressed in a magnificent, sparkly leotard is a different idea about music than mm. Eddie Cochran dressed as Eddie Cochran. And does that make any yeah. sense? Yeah. <laughs> and, and the thing is also, you, what you've got to recognise is when does the medium become the message? Because with Bowie, he'd sure. rebranded himself and he talked about blurring the lines of sexuality, androgyny, yeah. you know, I'm gay, and I always have been, even when I was David Jones. And of course he hadn't been. No. <laughs> but, you know, that in itself was innovative and, and putting his arm around Mick Ronson on that top of the pop performance yeah. is as innovative as you get, you know, because if this stuff yeah. is to bring these kind of um, art school and art traditions into popular music, mm -hmm. that's radical. You know, yes, it's yeah. been done before, but it is about context. And he, you know, was probably the first person who used the word appropriation to a ridiculous degree, you know. <laughs> and so he's made us rethink, you know, things like sampling culture, what is ripping off somebody else's song and what is appropriation. Mm -hmm. And when you say I'm doing it, when you're writing a song for Bob Dylan and I'm ripping you off, but look, I'm telling everybody that I'm doing it. Yeah. Look, I'm basically appropriating Andy Warhol and I'm name-checking and I'm doing it. You know, that's very... It's kind of breaking down the third wall. It's, it's sort of Brechtian, whatever you want. Mm. It's bringing Hollywood techniques in. But it's, it's... The whole point is that it's all mapped out. So everything contributes to a, a greater whole. So actually, when you were carried along on the bandwagon, the fact that the music was a bit mm. retro... I mean, the musicians, people like Trevor Bolte, just thought, what, mm. what's this? This is just... This is just the Yardbirds, you know. We can't really put this out, and he he didn't have a problem. Right, fine, we've got a riff. This fine, yeah. stick. Here's another single, and we're done, you know. And again, he was thinking about something bigger than you know the the, the ripped off riffs, of which there were a lot. Do you think there's also an innovation that he's already that Bowie's already um, made in terms of the subject matter of his songs, where you know it's obviously uh, he's steeped in science fiction. Science fiction mm. comes out really early on some of his earlier records, like you know, there's songs like uh, Savior Machine, like uh, which is like this sci fi concept where people build a computer and put it in control, mm. but the computer gets bored and then considers like destroying everybody. <laughs> this is on one of his Anthony Newley esque kind of mm. records, so it's it's kind of a, a kind of strange world that he's really interested in. And he wants to put in the realm of pop music. It seems to me like, if not the first, then he's certainly one of the first people to kind of be critiquing the culture in which he is now living, you know, in mm. using sci-fi's tools mm. and making mm. them into pop songs. Yeah, well, that is true. But you've got to remember that the context as well is 68, that there's a lot of people who were hip to Michael Moorcock and all that stuff around the place. And I think actually, combined with everything else, mm. it's new. But hey, who was the big um, influence on, on Ziggy? It was Vince Taylor, who, you know, who met Bowie on yeah. Denmark Street with a map of locations where UFOs had landed. You know, so there's a <laughs> lot of that in the air. But, I mean, he said, didn't he, that he spent most of the 60s deciding what direction to take. And I think his aspirations were mostly theatrical, weren't they? You know, up until the 70s. Well, you know, that's to talk about his motivation. I think that's mm -hmm. a really interesting question. But it's one 
you know, when you think about somebody, I mean, I wrote a book about the guy, and it's presumptuous to write a book, isn't it? That's what James Boswell called biographies. <laughs> and but nonetheless, you can say a lot of stuff is is on the record. We know he was thinking this at this yeah. time, and and my guess is he just wanted whatever he could get. I think it started off with just wanting to be famous in that old way of wanting yeah. to be validated. You know, his mum didn't love him much. He, he lived in Bromley, for goodness sake. You know, so he's so bored. Any way out <laughs> of it. And so yeah. I think the one thing that drove him, and that came through right from, you know, all of his collaborators on the DRAM album, is he, he just thought, you know what, this isn't happening. There's not enough here. I'm bored. You know, I'm mm. living in Bromley. I want to get away from all of this. So it was just a really generic escapism. I think that's yeah. why the sci-fi stuff feeds into it. And then the love of music. And let's not forget mm. the love of Little Richard. He was an innovator. You know, he was a gen- yeah. gender bender. He used to dress in outrageous outfits. You yeah, know. he went to see... Chuck Berry as a child, yeah, didn't he? Yeah. Exactly. And so all of that fed into to a desire for escapism. Uh, hold that thought now for a word about our sponsor, Jaguar. You're listening to the Mojo podcast, brought to you by Jaguar and the new Jaguar XE. At Mojo, we're always learning new things from old. We get, for instance, that history complements and informs our understanding of the best new music. Jaguar work the same way, and their collaboration in the new Jaguar XE with the premium audio brand Meridian shows how heritage values and a cutting-edge outlook can sit side-by-side in perfect comfort. So this week on the Mojo Innovators, we're talking Bowie. Let's jump forward a few years now to Bowie in Berlin. Paul, in your book, you talk about how that period was particularly groundbreaking. Yeah, for me, um, you know, however much I love the Ziggy period, the point at which he reaches Berlin... He's kind of reconstructing himself as a character. And he really is, to me, reconstructing popular music. You know, with glam, we've talked about the antecedents. But what he's done, he's taking other people's music. He's appropriating bands like Noi. And actually, if you listen to it, a lot of Noi, it sounds quite a lot like Heroes. And he's taking Kraftwerk, you know, that sort of glacial synthesizer cool. But he's had this great idea that he told Iggy about when they were driving it together in his limo in in LA that he was going to have a kind of R&B rhythm section underneath it and mm. so you know you listen to that um, German music which is beautiful I love Neu mm. and you know you, but you never really get to the point where it's kind of making your heart race because it's it's motoric you know it's, yeah, it's, it's, colder, it's metronomic yeah. and then mm. just have something with that human swing to stick the two together to have the kind of the head and the heart mm. that was truly radical yes uh, and you know and, and that still lingers today whenever you, you just turn on the radio you can hear that kind of sonic palette all the time you know if yeah. something is electronic with a sort of sequence it's very straight we we think of it as being straight but the moment all that stuff is integrated together in a way that affects you emotionally, then I think that basically builds on the Berlin albums and, I guess, Scary Monsters as well. And there's a whole lot more on top of that, you know, because the songs were great and the way the albums were done were great and, and the design of the albums that was all based on, you know, on all the, the Brucker artists. And um, But, yeah, at the, at the very most fundamental it just sounds unique. And how many people have actually had to mm. just hear the whole sound, the way it's put together, and that was just the innovation that I think crowns them all, and I think he saw it as that to the end of his life, really. Danny, how important is Brian Eno's role in that sound? Well, it is and it isn't. I think that what's important to note about the Berlin period is it starts in France. 
So they start making the low album uh, at Chateau Derryville with Tony Visconti initially uh, producing. Mm. And Bowie kind of brings this kind of dissociative state that he's in from uh, his uh, LA period where he was out of his mind on cocaine and he's kind of retreated back to Europe in order to kind of recover however what we get in the low album is like a kind of sonic version of almost like a cold turkey experience where certainly side one it has this real really harsh metallic grating kind Mm. of attack you know, this isn't pop music that's meant to be in any way relaxing or fun. It's kind of all about uncomfortable states. When Eno arrived, he'd planned it all out. Visconti was left on the edge, and then Eno arrived halfway through. He'd been working with Harmonia, I think. And um, and then, yes, they, they sort of briefed the musicians and said, we're going to do something completely different, and this half's just going to be instrumental. And it mm. was. But I think... They'd got that first half, and that was always already radical because the way Bowie was using the musicians was, again, completely new. It was like they were, it was assembled in the recording studio, so they'd have a bit of a riff, and they'd work on that for a bit, and then they'd say, let's try this riff, and then he mm-hmm. might have a bit of a lyric he was going to hum for them. So that alone is very kind of um, disorientating for a, for a musician. And then suddenly they're into this completely new territory. And, and the whole point was, is we're going to do this and nobody's done it before. And they were, they were definitely a team, you know, Visconti. When they, they were recording stuff so quickly, they'd experiment for ages, and then they'd assemble a song, and, and Visconti was editing the master tapes. He was just a genius at... Uh, they're kind of grouping faders, so they think this thing's important. I'm going to push this up in the mix, and they were doing mm. live mixes all the time. So Visconti was really working the recording studio, and it wouldn't happen, you know, without him. The collision of all those people in the studio at the same time in Paris, where Frederick Chopin's ghost was supposed to live, <laughs> and gave Brian Eno, and so Brian Eno thought he was dying from tuberculosis. <laughs> he made the album, and then Iggy Pop would be doing the long comedy monologues. You know, that's yeah. that's really one of the great rock and roll stories of how they. How all how this great music came out, all that madness, and even the conventional songs sound strange. So, sound and vision, you think, oh, that's a hit single. I heard that, you know, on the radio in the seventies and eighties, kind of thing. And we did, but if you listen to it, you realise it goes on for so long before there's any intervention from the vocal at all. And when it is, it's just Bowie going ah, and you think. That's insanely brilliant, and who'd have thought you'd need to have the singer come in quicker? Yeah, it's fast and immediate. It's a yeah. proper song, come on. Mm. But no, it's it's very, very strange. And there's mm. a, one of my favourite songs on that record is uh, What in the World? And that's um, that's very Eno-fied, because Eno comes in at the very beginning with his EMS synthy, and he creates this really nasty, aggressive kind of bubbling noise that goes over the top of the first verse and and comes back in regular intervals in the song and it creates this atmosphere of it kind of drives the song on but it's like a hubbub it's like the it's the clamor in poor old david bowie's brain as he kind of kicks cocaine and tries to get his life back on track sure because famously bowie had taken iggy with him to berlin so that they could kick drugs so presumably they were both in a fairly uncomfortable physical state which 
you know, no doubt inform that discomfort that you were talking about. And earlier. not entirely kicking drugs either. That mm. should also be mentioned. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, the main thing is as well, it's one thing to talk about kicking cocaine, but when you're just consuming huge amounts of alcohol, which they were doing, you know. At the same time, though, they were kind of tapping into their inner children and, and students. So I, although it, people think of it as a very depressive time, I think it was a kind of magical time them as well mm. and uh, but chaotic but they were li- living like students you know learning out how th- Bowie taught Iggy how to prep a canvas when it became too much because Bowie would often be uh, sort of collapsing in floods of tears when they recorded low because he was having terrible financial problems he'd run out of money mm. um, you know, he'd get told off if he bought a new shirt without permission you know and so he was under a lot of stress and that's why yeah. Iggy would give these long comedy monologues talking about, you know, what happened with the Stooges, that the reason he, he rolled in broken glass was that Scott Rock Action, the drummer, would notice what was happening and stop the song. Otherwise, it would just go on forever. So when he see me bleeding, then we stop the song. And, and so, you know, and, and so if Bowie thought he'd had a hard time, then you, well, you think you've had a hard time, listen to this. You know, so that was happening in the studio. And then they moved at the end to Berlin, not the studio by the wall, but one, I think, on the Kurfürsten Dam, where you could see tanks driving up and down. Mm-hmm. And they finished it there and they put um, uh, Eddie Meyer's cello on. And so but the whole ambience around the place was like nothing before, you know. And again, it's, can we think of any artists who were really, really massive and then just disappeared like that? I mean, how radical yeah. is that? In a day when everything, everybody's omnipresent on Twitter or whatever just to disappear. And of course, he did it again mm. recently. And um, that alone was truly radical. At this point, he wasn't only doing something radical. He was, he was laying it out for us. Yes, I'm doing something radical. I'm mm. using these art house techniques. For the first time, you know, the kind of links between me and sort of modern art are really, really highlighted. So all the packaging, again, was very, very radical. But as you say, you know, you hear something like sound and vision on the radio. You don't need to kind of have somebody explain to you, this isn't like anything I've heard before. Because I can actually remember that as a kid, you know, punk. Um, you know, for me, Bowie was sort of more like an old brothers band and you know it's because yeah because i like iggy you know iggy was, is the radical and then you listen to sound and vision you think that's just like nothing else before and of course that came out right as punk was becoming mainstream you know sham 69 were around and then you have sound and, and vision you know so even before punk has really kind of become mainstream he's already looking to what to the next decade and in fact really as far as i'm concerned he's looking towards the next century really with that and our third dip into Bowie's legacy is his final album, Black Star. How is that transformative, Paul? Black Star was something really quite unique on a sort of artistic and I guess a human level too. And I think he used his own mortality as a kind of vehicle for making great art, which is pretty innovative, isn't it? Mm. And when I was writing Starman in sort of the mid-2000s, I guess, at that point he disappeared. And it was my thesis that he'd used this disappearance as a Hollywood way of, you know, of, of just turning off the tap of publicity and making himself seem all the more precious. Yeah. And that's quite radical. But, of course, he went beyond that and, and turned Black Star into something that addressed mortality. And it was mm. in itself a great lesson for all of us as humans. You know, we're not going to be here forever, are we? So what are we going to do? We're going to sit and 
be full of regrets or we we'd be with a bunch of musicians in a studio and grab some sounds out of the ether and just yeah. say right boys let's run through this once and record live with the band and then i think it's in sue where he re-records it and he's he's his voice is just pitched up a semitone and they're all following him and they all pitch up a semitone and then the song gets a bit more intense so just to snatch a bit more energy out of your time on this planet and then actually market it brilliantly as well yeah. you know that it's almost like the culmination of of everything he'd done before and we we mentioned before how he's addressing his critics he thought he sounded like Vera Lynn and he's sampling and it is in I think I can't give everything away where uh, he's sampling a new career in a new town so he's talking about his own death as being a new career in a new town and how beautiful is that as well so it yeah. shows that underneath all of that we've talked about somebody who's very cerebral but we're talking about somebody who's kind of that's quite deep and yeah, spiritual, spiritual as yeah. well at, at the same time as well so it is uh, that you know that in itself i think in the decades to come i think we will see that album as being as good a part of the canon as i'm sure he would have called it or did call it the european canon you know that that's as intrinsic part of the the bowie mm. catalogue as anything really and I can't imagine another artist going into the world of jazz the way that Bowie did uh, to recruit that group that is on Black Star, Donnie McCaslin mm. and um, uh, Jason Monder and, and those guys. I mean, it's such a, a unique sounding record. It doesn't sound like jazz, for one thing, you know, so it doesn't sound like Bowie goes jazz. The combination of Bowie's songwriting and his, as you said earlier, his cur- curation of the kind of recording environment and this jazz group coming into that and really having this really driving kind of, again, quite aggressive sound that they have through most of the record. I mean, I was gobsmacked by it. Obviously, we received this record in the Mojo office under the impression that David Bowie was hale and hearty, you know, so there was no idea that this was going to be his last record. I, I remember thinking... My God, he's done it again. He's he's opened a door here for an entirely new sound in popular music, and hopefully he'll do it. He'll develop this again. This is the low, and the next album will be the heroes of this phase. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. uh, that was really really exciting, and 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 it was really crushing that it was you know truncated in the way that it was. And I suppose looking back now, we just have to be thankful that he had that last phase of incredible yeah. creativity. Always and, leave them wanting more. Yeah and, yeah, and the thing is, well, we've talked about innovation and the thing is, you know, if you're going to be an innovator, you have to be brave, don't you? You've, yeah. got, to, you've got to basically commit everything. And it, it was uh, George Underwood who actually said to me, even when Bowie was alive, you know, wasn't he brave to do what he did? And then we went back and then and we sort of were exercising those ghosts after David had died and we were just talking about that phrase, you know, but wasn't he brave to go into that long night, you know, and, and, and take risks at the edge and just leave it for people? But what I love is there's that bravery and there'd have been that sense of satisfaction and I know he was. It said he was in a coma in the last couple of days, but I just hope that he heard that his album got to number one, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because that's what you know. That's what your old school types like David want. They want to be really innovative. They want everybody <laughs> to love them, to respect them, yeah. and they want to be number one. So, one final question: We've touched on so many aspects of his of innovation. If you had to choose just one thing, what would it be? I think it's hard to um, 
break down exactly why Bowie had the impact on subsequent generations of artists that he did, but except to say that he most definitely did. And, uh, I mean, we have a section of Mojo magazine called Last Night a Record Changed My Life, where we ask a artist what record has had the most impact on them. And, um, well, we had to stop artists choosing the Ziggy Stardust album because (laughs) literally every third artist would say, well, of course, Ziggy Stardust. And then you say, well, (laughs) apart from Ziggy Stardust, you know, which album uh, changed your life? So I think that that, you know, that has really struck me. And um, certainly the amount of artists I've sat down and talked to about... Bowie and just the way their eyes kind of mist over and they kind of go to another place. I mean, this happened to me. Uh, can I name drop? You know, go I was then. interviewing Madonna the other day and bless her. Uh, the first gig she ever attended was um, David Bowie at Cobo Hall in Detroit wow. sometime in the mid 70s. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure it must have been that. Um, the Diamond Dogs tour that, that was, yeah. becomes the Soul tour, yeah. Um, and she yeah. says she bunked off. Well, she escaped. She wasn't allowed out of the house. Uh, she had to escape out the window, um, <laughs> leg it to Cobo Hall, went to see David Bowie, and and the way she described this epiphany of this guy who was she described him as neither male nor female, like being a kind of an avatar or a kind of projection from another dimension almost Mm. and for that impression to really shape her desire to be an artist and to define what it is artist is meant to do Mm. you know even in this kind of realm of pop music that's routinely disparaged he defined the size of what you could do the dimensions of what's possible yeah, and certainly a lesson that she learned from branding and characters and yeah, on absolutely, and on. yes. Yeah. yeah. The thing is that we could talk about what innovations Bowie brought in and and I spoke before about in my mind he changed the kind of sonic palette of popular music for sure, you know, so we can hear that now the way pop music sounds mm-hmm. sounds different because of the Bowie albums. But I think in terms of innovation there's something bigger and it's and it's kind of beyond popular music alone it is the idea of transcendence for me when you listen to starman he's talking about you know transcending our earthly existence but what he's really doing what his message is is how we can transcend our human limitations so here's this kid from bromley you know life is a bit boring he, he wasn't really very that good a singer and or he wasn't really that good a sax player he was pretty good he looked cool though you know and he, and he turned up on time and then he transcended those kind of limitations of his own humanity and made himself into an artist. And because he'd made himself into an artist once, he could remake himself as an artist. And, you know, if there's any innovation from which we can all learn, it's for all of us on a human level that we don't have to keep on doing the same thing. Well, you know, if we're successful, we do the, the same thing all the time. Let's do something different. And that's the way to just keep on living and keep on sort of building up your contribution to humanity. And I think that's the lesson he gave us all. Thanks, Paul. My thanks to my guests, Paul Trinker and Denny Eccleston. 
Next week, I'll be discussing the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin, with Mojo's own Jeff Brown and the singer and soul fan Sarah Brown, the real voice of Simple Minds. To hear all the music discussed on this podcast, visit the Mojo Innovators playlist on Apple Music. The Mojo Innovators podcast was brought to you by Jaguar and the new Jaguar XE. If you enjoyed it, please rate and subscribe. The producer was Simon Barnard and I'm Jenny Bully. Thank you for listening. <laughs>